We're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Sixteen major landowners have signed on to a deal to protect nearly 90% of a critical watershed ecosystem on Oahu. The Ko'olau Mountains Watershed Partnership has redoubled its efforts with twice the number of entities that signed on more than 20 years ago. J.C. Watson manages the partnership. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman poet about how the health of this mountain ecosystem impacts our water supply. About 90% of the population of Oahu gets their water from the Ko'olau. Um, and so it's vitally important that landowners collaborate and cooperate uh, because things like invasive species, feral ungulates, and climate change, you know, have a broad effect that doesn't stop at property boundaries. So the recommitment of 16 major landowners, including the uh, state of Hawaii, community schools, Board of Water Supply, Kualo Ranch, um, and many others was this recommitment to come and, um, yeah, continue the alliance. KMWP was actually first kind of born in 1999. So this is, you know, 23 years later, this is now the, the first time we've had kind of this larger grouping of landowners come together to meet each other. And it's very, very meaningful. JC, this partnership formed over 20 years ago. So why are partners reaffirming their commitment now? <laughs> Great question. Um. I mean, I guess, so I've been with uh, the manager of KMWP for about five years now. And part of my goals when I came on was to make sure that everyone was included and that it's an active participation, you know, an inactive partnership versus something that is just like a feel good, right? And, you know, I have a, a core staff team that supplies, um, that we provide support um, on the ground, boots on the ground um, across the landowner boundary, doing invasive species removal and landscape scale fencing and big community outreach things. And part of my kuleana that, that, that I accepted when I became the manager was engaging directly with the landowners. And one of the logical steps I felt was, you know, making sure that they know each other, that they're part of this partnership. And that way they, you know, they can call upon each other as needed to steward these vast, you know, it's, it's about 100,000 acres of, of land that, that all the partners co-steward. And how would your work be impacted if even just one of these partners who signed on yesterday did not want to continue with the partnership? The partnership really functions, you know, once it reaches like a critical mass. And if we don't have, you know, e enough acres, that kind of has direct on the ground impacts, right? Because the, the water that the rain that falls across the Ko'olaus, you know, soaks in and recharges our underground aquifers. Um, and this doesn't necessarily follow landowner boundaries. And if you had one of those landowners, you know, pull out, you might be losing an entire valley or many that multiple valleys. Um, and then the invasive species uh, can kind of shift those ecological regimes. And then you have lower kind of infiltration rates. And then you ultimately, given enough time, you could have uh, reduced aquifer recharge in these kind of localized areas. So it's, it's pretty important that everyone who came to the table today came. Um, you know, there's there are definitely some gaps in the partnership, whether they're, you know, foreign landholding companies or landowners who are kind of non-respondent. I, I actively try to go out and, and recruit them so that way we can kind of more um, holistically manage uh, our watersheds. And how can folks who are not large landowners bring this idea of partnership into their own lives? Is there a way that everyone can participate in the protection of our watersheds? You know, just just because the the vast kind of watershed recharge areas of our of our mountains are you know up beyond where people typically go, that doesn't mean the watershed itself you know stops at you know the street. Um, it continues, so it really is very important that everybody you know even your your individual homeowner plays a part in reducing invasive species. You know, trying to have as much. Um, you know, pervious surfaces, so non-concrete, non-you know, parking lot areas, um, and have you know their their downspots go into rain gardens versus going into the storm water system. So everyone definitely can play a part. And in our upper watersheds, being that they're kind of the end result of you know hundreds of years of land use change during the plantation era and you know urban boom and and all of that. It's yeah, humans need to play an active part in the management so that way the resources can not only, you know, sustain us, but allow us to prosper, right? It's a prosperity model. 
um, that we're shooting for. So yeah, it, it takes active management and active participation for sure. And the Ko'olau yields over 100 billion gallons of water recharge. With an effective conservation strategy, can we increase that recharge or are we just really working to maintain that baseline? So it's incredibly challenging, you know, at least at my level, to be able to calculate the amount of increased recharge because we're thinking that we're, you know, we're operating on these hydrologic timescales, right? And it takes somewhere between 20 and 40 years for a drop of water that falls today to make its way down to the aquifers to where um, the Board of Water Supply can move it around and distribute it to all the customers. But really, you know, what we're looking at is definitely stopping the curb of of a decline. You know, in the early 1900s, back when, you know, our, our watersheds, especially in the Honolulu area, were completely denuded of trees, the early foresters and people were noticing this dramatic drop in the aquifer levels and springs were drying up and everything. So there was a mass push of reforestation, which allowed for greater infiltration and uh, recharge to occur. And now, 100 years later, we're we're seeing that some of those species that were introduced, unfortunately, became incredibly invasive, such as like Albizia trees, as an example. And with that, you know, knowledge from the past, we can go in and remove these invasive species to allow for the native forests to really be protected and thriving because our native forests act as a, essentially as a sponge, just receiving water and allowing it to slow down during rain events and gradually soak in. Our native forests even capture uh, water directly out of the air. It's called fog intercept. Um, and approximately 20% of the recharge actually comes from the fog intercept. So as you know, those clouds are sitting on top of the Ko'olau, those, you know, ohia that are covered in moss are actually allowing that to condense onto the foliage and onto the vegetation. And then that slowly soaks in and makes up the 20% of the, the recharge. And by sustaining that and increasing native forest health and increasing areas of native forest, you know, we're, the hope is that that will then increase the amount or the yield of, of water later, but it's going to be, you know, some decades before we start to realize the benefits of the work that we're conducting today. Okay. Lastly, for listeners like myself who are downtown, indoors, surrounded by buildings and cars and concrete, this environment can feel very far away. Just how close are we to our watershed ecosystems? Yeah. I mean, the ecosystem, if you think about it from just a distance, you know, even though you're downtown, you are less than two miles from forest. And, you you know, stretching from, from Honolulu to the top of Konohunui is like three or four miles. So we're really, really close. And the impact of what happens up Malka has an immediate effect down down Makai and that can be you know flooding is is really um, something that's on people's radar and re- reducing flooding and that happens in the back first before it makes its way down and you know our water is a slower process but really it's it's all connected and all you have to do is step outside and and look through the the gaps in the buildings and boom there's your watershed it's not hundreds of miles away or anything like that it's it's right there and you can get get out into it and you know I, I urge people to just make that connection that every time you turn the tap on I mean that's a direct output from our forest you know the, the most valuable output is is water it's, it's not timber it's not minerals it's water and our forests are the 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 spaces that allow us to to live here in Hawaii and allow us to sustain life and with, without them you know this would be a, a deserted place. And it would be very, very different. So yeah, go out and get connected and learn learn your native species and, and bring them bring them down and plant them at your homes because an ohia tree in every yard is a possibility. That was J.C. Watson, manager of the Ko'olau Mountains Watershed Partnership, talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Poet. 16 landowners have signed on to conservation efforts in the Ko'olau Mountain Range to help protect our water resource. Molokai Ranch is the subject of our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beats' Brittany Light joins us uh, with a story about its future. Good morning, Brittany. 
Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, Molokai Ranch, I mean, that for a long time was a, a major employer on the island. A major employer. And, uh, you know, there was a very adversarial relationship between the ranch and most people in the local community. Uh, you know, in 2008, that was really a turning point. That's when the ranch was, you know, admittedly said they were fed up with the protests about their development plans and they pretty much packed up and left uh put 120 people out of work and you know ever since there's been quite a lot of the uh, old remnants of the ranch that are just sort of decaying yeah and the the rub was uh the plans to develop a, a luxury project on that island and there was a lot of pushback on that so much pushback, yes. And and so, you know, the community and the ranch, they kind of forged this unlikely partnership to come up with a master plan for the west end of the island. But that Laal uh, luxury housing development proved to be the breaking point. Uh, and so ever since, much of that uh, property has sort of just been idle. And, uh, you know, then in 2017, that was another pivotal moment when the ranch actually put the property up on the market for sale for a price of $260 million. And now what, the community is trying to buy it? <laughs> yes, the community is trying to buy it. And this is actually an old idea. 1998 was the first time that some community leaders started talking about this idea of you know, okay, we, we're not happy with how the ranch is stewarding the land. We're not happy with their development ideas. Why don't we buy the ranch? So it's actually an old effort, and uh, it's getting a lot of new life, new energy. There's an up-and-coming generation of Molokai uh, community leaders, and they're young, and they've got, you know, new energy, new drive, and they're sort of trying to take this old idea and make it happen. Well, how do you go about doing that? I mean, that's a big price tag. <laughs> that is the big question. Is this possible? Is this realistic? Uh, I think everyone who's involved in conversations about this knows that's a very ambitious goal. Uh, but they're sort of feeding off of the momentum of this um, global land back movement where there has been a wave of lands worldwide that have been um, brought back into the stewardship of native people or other, you know, former owners who had been upset with the way the, the lands had been managed. And uh, so, you know, they're, they're looking for investors, they're open to all ideas, but uh, this is, you know, being discussed in regular community meetings. It's you know, a very open process. No decisions have been made yet about how it would happen or what the community would even do with the land if they got it, but it's all being discussed. Yeah, and you had talked to uh, Maui Mayor Mike Victorino, uh, and I know he said that what he supports the idea, but he just wonders if it's too much for, uh, too big of a job uh, for the uh, residents there to manage. I mean, this is one-third of the island. If the residents pull this off, they will become the seventh largest uh, landowners in the state. It's, it's huge. And there are issues with that land. You know, it's uh, experiencing severe drought, which is likely to get worse. Um, you know, overgrazing and deforestation have really caused some ecological and, and environmental problems there. Um, so whoever owns the ranch is going to have to deal with, with those things with a scarce supply of water as well, and we can't, um, which could hinder any development idea. And we can't uh, 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 not mention the uh, exploding deer population that they have over there causing some real problems. Yes, exploding deer population plus drought equals, you know, Starving deer, dying deer, deer dying in your yards and, you know, carcasses with a terrible stench, deer who are starving, eating your garden, eating your crops. It's, it's really messy. So there's a lot to correct. And, you know, I think uh, there are many things motivating this, but certainly turning around the um, sort of 
uh, environmental health of that land is is one thing that's driving a lot of residents to want to take this seriously. Right. And then, you know, because the property is on sale, I mean, you might get somebody else that has their designs on that land, too. Yes, I think that the desire to have really inclusive, open conversations with the community about this process is really countered only by the feeling of being under the gun. You know, they know that billionaires are looking to Hawaii and and interested in buying their own piece of paradise. And, you know, there are other investment firms that might have their eye on this as well. So they definitely there's definitely a bit of urgency, I think. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brittany. Take care. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Cross-Pollination, Flowers Across the Collection, artworks from Homa's vaults and galleries exploring the resonance of flowers in art. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Rochelle is a single mom in Detroit, and on Mother's Day, her 12-year-old opened his heart to her. Really broke down just the struggle that day-to-day life is for him in a way that I had not realized. There's a youth mental health crisis in America, and it's even more acute for children of color. Hey, I need help. I don't have an answer. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. We now turn our attention to the list of leading candidates running for governor. A familiar face is Republican uh, James Duke Iona. He served as lieutenant governor with Republican Governor Linda Lingle for two terms. A retired state judge, he says he still handles some law cases and also teaches. We caught up with him yesterday afternoon about his return to politics. I still do things that are related to the legal profession, so I still have a couple of cases that I do. And But I also got into teaching, teaching online at uh, Chaminade University. And also I've, I've done a couple of projects with the DOE in regards to uh, intervention programs with attendance. So very, very engaged in that and very rewarding. But, you know, for the most part, it's been taking care of the grandchildren. We have eight grandchildren. They're pretty much from nine to two months old. And so they go right down the line, and we've just been having a great time with them. But I guess it was like many people, um, a lot of things have been happening in the last couple of years or so, not only here in Hawaii, but across the country. And you get a little frustrated. And, you know, just seeing where we're going right now in Hawaii, I, I felt like there was really a vacuum in in the leadership, as well as just a loss of, uh, of, of the spirit of aloha, Catherine. I, I think um, it is dissipated to the point where now I, I'm saying that we kind of have a broken moral compass, not only here in Hawaii, but even you know in the country. It's very difficult to have a civil discussion with anybody on any issue. If you're not with them, you're against them, and you get accused of you know, all kinds of things, right? So you know, I thought about it and prayed a lot on it, obviously, both my wife and I, and felt like God was calling us for this time because of my background, you know, two terms as, a, as LG. And, of course, my, my tenure as a judge, that really came into play. I really felt like I, I had been trained and I had the skills and the ability to do what's needed now, which is to be collaborative, to be inclusive, to be objective, and of course to bring people together and, and make decisions based on that impartiality and, and just listening to both sides, right? The pros and the cons and then you know, bringing them together as best as we can. I mean, that's what I did. I was a mediator, I was a judge, and we, we did that when, when we weren't in trial. And of course, when we were in trial, if I had to make a decision, it's based on the facts and not on my emotion, not on what I think it should be, but just based on the facts and the law. And you apply it and you, and you rule accordingly. So I felt all of that was uh, was what we needed right now. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just my time. You know, uh, this is our time. 2010 and 2014 just wasn't our time. And so here we are. I'm a little older. So, yes, I'm a little wiser, <laughs> a little more patient. And, and all I think all good things that goes with um, what's needed right now. So that's well, where I'm at. A lot of our listeners, you know, will say, gosh, we really would like to see a strong two-party system. And exactly. we haven't had that yeah. in the state for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, people were surprised when Governor Lingle got in. One of the things that's driving me is this two-party system. We are now in such a state of corruption. I, I don't 
you know, in my lifetime, I'm 67, I don't believe we've ever been at this intensity in regards to public corruption, right? Prosecutors indicted, police chiefs in jail, a deputy prosecutor's in jail. We got a state senator in jail. We got a, a state rep that's going to be put in jail very shortly. We probably might have one of the uh, the major Democrat contributors put in jail also. I, I mean, this is it's, it's never been like this. Now, eerie enough, when Governor Lingo and I ran and won in 2002, the political climate was very similar to this. If you recall, it was Andy Miracatani, Reen Monshow, and Cliff Wani, who just, I guess, they were in jail. They served not, not a whole bunch of time, but they served some time in jail because of you know what they were doing with uh, campaign uh, spending and funding. So it's very eerie. That's that's the you know where we're at right now. And um, so the two party system is exactly what you want. But you know these are longstanding issues that we've had: housing, cost of living, right, education. And where are we today? We're we're in the same place actually where we were when I ran eight years ago, when I ran even twelve years ago. We're in the same place. We nothing's changed. In fact, people just tell me nothing's changed. It's only gotten worse. So I really, I'm, I'm really excited. What I, I can't wait if I get elected to jump into affordable housing. Well, I'm calling it housing because it's, it's affordable is a relative term, right? What's affordable to you may not be affordable to me. And we just have really a shortage of, of housing supply. I mean, I shouldn't say all we have, but that's a big part of it. We don't just we don't have enough housing, and we need we need them all, right? We we need the condos, we need the homes, we need the the transitional homes for those who are houseless right now and need to transition to something, some kind of shelter, and then eventually get into a you know some whether it's a condo or home or rental. We need rentals also, and we need them by the thousands of units, not just ten thousand, not just fifteen thousand. I think it's up to like twenty five, twenty eight thousand, and it can't wait. So, you know, I, I have some ideas in regards to how we can get there. First and foremost, it's about the regulatory system, just make, making sure that we can revamp that now, get us in alignment in regards to the state and the county. Catherine, what we should have a serious discussion on is eliminating the Land Use Commission. Right, we've heard that uh, I, I, no, I, for yeah, decades. And I think that's something that needs to be done now because that, you talk to many developers, they're going to tell you, you know, it's because of the Land Use Commission. We're still stuck on that, right? Coal Ridge took about 15 years to, to come to fruition. I think is not far behind in regards to that, right? And you're looking at that right there. That's about 20, over 20,000 units that are going to be developed through those, those projects, right? So I know for a fact with Coal Ridge, the Land Use Commission was the, was the big hiccup for, um, for Castle and Cook. Uh, I don't know what it was for Shuler in regards to Ho'opili, but I think it was also the Land Use Commission. So the question on the line is going to be, should we eliminate it? I think we should. I think the counties can handle it. I think they've already set up in regards to zoning and, and how they can do it appropriately. So I, I think that's that would be a big, big move in the right direction in getting a lot of uh, units done. How do you plan to do that? Because it has the, to be with the ledge. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the Republicans, you know, their numbers have dwindled. Yes. I don't think it's a political thing, though. That's just it. I, I think it's for the good of the people, and that's how I would approach it. But you need somebody to, to put that on the table, and, and it's obviously the governor would be the perfect person to put that on the table. And how do you plan to bring people together? Because the Republican Party is fractured, and it has not been easy for the party. No, it hasn't. And I look at myself as somebody who uh, can bring people together by, by well, one, listening. And then obviously letting them know, though, that it's not always going to be your way, right? And we have to do what's best for all the people of Hawaii. So it's not about just a party thing. I've never been about that, and I think Governor Lingo made that clear when she ran also, but I also made it clear that it's not party first, it's the people first. And that's always been my position. So likewise, in the party, they're, they're going to know that I'm a leader for the people of Hawaii. Of course, there are, there are principles and there's values that I identify with the Republican Party that will always be, you know, forefront with me. And I think all the people know that. So I, I don't make it a secret. It's transparent. This is where I, what I believe in. Uh, a, good, a good point on that is about life. I, I believe in life from conception to death. That's been my position from day one. It will always be my position. But that doesn't mean that I don't listen to what people have to say about, you know, whatever might be related to it. And when it comes to abortion right now, I, you know, it's, it's a, in Hawaii, abortion is, is here. It's, it's, a, it's our law. The, it's, it's now with the legislature the way, I, I believe, the way it should have been, and it is. And so if any change is going to come in regards to abortion, it's going to be through the legislature. And so people got to understand that, and that's how you make 
a lot of changes in, in, in laws and policies are through the legislature. People think it's all about the governor, but it's not. This is why we have three co-equal branches of government, right? So in, in response to your question, just adding a little bit more, it's, it's about letting them know that it's not about just parties, and, and the Democrats also. And this is why if I get elected, that's a huge statement by the people of Hawaii in regards to a two-party system and, of course, the corruption that they're seeing right now. Because, you know, what's interesting, there's a couple of candidates right now who are saying, okay, how are we going to end corruption, you know, in, in, uh, in government? Well, they say two-party system. Well, not two-party. That, um, that's the one that they don't mention. They mention term limits. Correct. Term limits. I think we've been saying that for years, right? Term limits. And they're saying now, no fundraising during the legislative session. <laughs> that's kind of a no-brainer, right? I mean, what? It took you guys this long, but they got to say it now. And there's a couple of others. But what they don't mention is the two-party system. And they know that that is a significant element to how we're going to end this corruption. So I think they all understand that. And we, we have to work together just for the good of the people. You know, I, I have heard people say, well, I just might switch parties and, and, and pull a Republican ticket. You know, at the end of the day, I think people also want to know, well, where do you stand with President Trump and January 6th? <laughs> because we're, you know, we're knee deep in those headlines yeah. even today. Well, you know, I think that's a fair question because it has been current in regards to that January 6th hearings, right? When it comes to President Trump, obviously, I'm a Republican. When President Trump got the nomination, I did vote for President Trump. People ask, are you going to vote for him if he runs again? I don't know. Because I don't know if he's going to run again. All indications seem that he's going to be running again. But I don't know if anybody else is going to jump into the race. So if it comes, you know, when it comes to that point in time, I'll make my decision there because I don't know who else will be in the race. So I, that's why, you know, when people ask that question, Catherine, I go, well, that's not just relevant right now. Okay, but January, January 6th. 6th. January 6th. I really believe that, um, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I've got to be honest with you. I haven't paid attention to these hearings, and the reason I haven't paid attention to these hearings is because I look at it as a political, um, how can I put it? I don't want to say a political show, but I think people are just were so enamored with President Trump that they either hated him or they loved him. And those that hated him have made it their objective and their agenda to get him no matter what. And I really believe that this January 6th hearing is a big part of it. So that's one of the reasons why I haven't paid much attention to it. More importantly, I believe what happened on January 6th is, uh, is, is not an aberration. It is something that should never have happened. It's, it, it was a big black eye on us as a, as, a, as a country. I think everybody who's involved in it and that are responsible for it should be prosecuted. And so I really believe that it's not the legislature, in this case Congress, that is tasked to do that. It's the law enforcement arms that we have, and I think they have, and they've already indicted some people. And if there's more to be indicted, then they should, and they should, they should, be, they should be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. But I don't believe it's Congress's duty to now have a legislative hearing on this and come up with what? And it seems like their objective is just to get to get Donald Trump. Well, if there is evidence to show that the president had some... By all means. By all means. But, again, I think that's the criminal justice's kuleana uh, to get that, you know, investigated and done. It, they, I know they got a lot of congressional hearings that go on for a lot of different things. And, yeah, absolutely. If there's evidence, then, yeah, I hope they would turn it over to, to the proper right. authorities. Well, I mean, we saw uh, Vice President Pence, you know, stand up and say no. You know, this mm -hmm. is the process, mm -hmm. and I'm going to be there mm -hmm. to see it through. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there were people on the Democrats who who said he did the right thing that day. Mm -hmm. uh, do you agree? Well, yeah, I think he um, he fulfilled his obligation as vice president. Likewise, uh, I would how I would fulfill mine if I was in office as as LG, and I would do it. And likewise, if I was governor, I would do it. Yeah. So if you have anything to say to people out there, to Republicans out there, and to Democrats. You want to make a bold statement. You really want to, you know, say that uh, we need a two-party system. Uh, now's the time to vote for Duke Iona in, uh, in the primary, obviously, and then, of course, into the general election. And that was Republican Duke Iona, former lieutenant governor and retired judge who is uh, running for governor in the primary against fellow GOP candidates Heidi Suniyoshi and B.J. Penn. We hope to hear from them next week. For more election information uh, on candidates, check out the election page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
For the first time, a tropical sea urchin has been grown in the laboratory using cryopreserved embryos. Researchers Charlie Westbrook and Mary Hagedorn work out of the uh, Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology Labs on Coconut Island. Their groundbreaking research using frozen tissue was announced by the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Uh, Hagedorn uh, talks about why this is a major step in protecting diversity along our coral reefs in the face of climate change. So crab preservation is a, just another conservation tool, and it's often thought of as a last-ditch effort. But really, what you really need to be able to do is do cryopreservation along with all the other conservation processes that you might do. And that's because you need a lot of genetic diversity and biodiversity to put into your banks. And once populations have gotten too small, like, say, the black-footed ferret, it's really hard to then cryopreserve them and do anything to conserve them. So the fact that we've, we're developing processes for coral reefs that include urchins is really a step ahead of climate change. And this is a big deal to be able to rear an urchin like this through this process. It is. Charlie, you can speak to that. I was over the moon when we finally got it to work. It's difficult as it is, like, just to rear these urchins even when they're not cryopreserved. And so I had gone through an initial control batch where I hadn't cryopreserved any of the embryos and just tried to raise them to see what my numbers would look like. And then after that, I tried to cryopreserve embryos from that same cohort and rear those. And it was my first time running through the entire developmental process after cryopreservation, so I didn't really know what to expect. Honestly, I didn't really expect it to to succeed on the first try. I was like, oh, I'll probably have to go through this multiple times. But yeah, we had a few that survived, and, and, I, and the first time I saw them settle on a, the glass of my beaker, I was I was ecstatic. I was like, I can't believe this works. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, they're your babies, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we really are at this point. <laughs> so share with our listeners how difficult it was for for the to grow these things. I mean, I, I understand that feeding them is a is a is a bit of a chore. So even when you don't cryopreserve them, these this species has a pelagic larval duration of about a month to two months, and, and that basically means that before these urchins settle out on the reef and metamorphose into what we know looks like an urchin, they have a larval stage where they're just basically drifting in the open ocean, and that can last anywhere from one to two months. And during that stage, you have to feed them constantly, but it, it just seems like the longer you keep these larvae in captivity, the more chances there are that you might mess up the culture and, and potentially not feed them well, potentially the water quality might go south and, and you could lose, uh, your whole culture could crash essentially. And so for me, it just seems like the longer something has to stay in the pelagic larval stage, the greater my chances are that I might accidentally kill them. And so it's already difficult enough without cryopreserving them. But then you add cryopreservation into the mix and it's almost an entire different ballgame. Cryopreservation is, is pretty tricky. It's an extremely useful tool, but you have to monitor all sorts of different parameters, such as the loading rate of cryoprotectant agents, the cooling rates, the thawing rates, the rehydration rates, and that's just so that they can survive through the cryopreservation process. But then after that is done, you still have the entire developmental stages of these larvae that you have to work through. And so essentially there's just many ways that these larvae can die during one of these experiments. And so it can be quite tedious to parse out all the different variables in order to optimize a protocol that actually works. So describe to our listeners, you know, how large are these urchins now that you've got them past this phase? Oh, they're, they're tiny. The first one that settled out looked like a flick of dust on the side of the glass. It was, it was very small. In order to get pictures of it, we had to look at it under a dissection microscope or a, a compound microscope, actually. They're very small when they first settle in metamorphose. And so what's going to happen to them now? So again, they're just super small. And so I'm just trying to keep an eye on them in the tank and, and hopefully see if they continue to develop and see how far along their development they can go. Because again, this is the first time it's been done with this species. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like uncharted territory. So we'll just see how their development compares to a non-cryopreserved batch of urchins. 
again, just trying to assess their health. So the, the type that we're working with is called Trinustes gratillus, the scientific name, but it's more colloquially uh, known as the collector urchin. Um, it has very short spines, and you might see it on the reef. It has a tendency of just collecting random objects from the benthos as it moves around. What color sometimes are they? It might be, they're black a lot of times. They, they, a lot of times it will appear black, but they can sometimes have orange spines. Their tube feet might have like a sort of a bluish tint to them. So they, they can be some variation in the coloration, but for the most part, you might just see them as, as being black on the, on the reef. And so, gosh, you've gotten them to this stage. What would be helpful to get them to, to propagate? Again, just continuing, I guess, their, their development and, and seeing if they can reach uh, sexual maturity and, and seeing if they're actually fully functional urchins, I guess, would be like the optimal test of this experiment is like, will, will these urchins develop into functioning adults that can themselves also reproduce and continue um, to propagate in the wild, potentially. And are these the type of urchins that help eat the algae on the reef? Yes, yes. These are the, the urchins that the State Division of Aquatic Resources uses as a biocontrol agent, which was kind of the, the reason I initially was focusing on this species. Was uh, A few years back, I was volunteering with uh, the State's Division of Aquatic Resources and the Nature Conservancy. And we would go out on those super sucker barges that they use to help remove invasive algae from the various reefs in the bay. And after manually removing a lot of that algae, they would go back out and disperse juvenile urchins all over the reef to kind of help clean up whatever was left and hopefully keep that algae growth in check to maintain a balance in the reef and give the corals basically a chance to recolonize those reefs and, and grow without having to compete with these invasive algae species. And Mary, you know, this is your lab where this is happening. It must be pretty exciting just to kind of see this develop. Yeah, it's extremely exciting because not only is it important for, you know, the species that are here in Hawaii, because, um, you know, uh, we can bank them not only for using as a biocontrol agent, but we also bank them, we will probably bank them in the future for biodiversity because there have been times when these urchins have gotten diseases and their populations have been impacted. So if we can actually go around the state and, and collect different populations and cryopreserve them, that will make, it, you know, the whole bio, bio remediation process is very secure. But in addition, you know, this is a model for other tropical species. And maybe Charlie will talk a little bit about them, but there's, a, there's one in the Caribbean called diadema that is really important for the control of algae and other things in the Caribbean that has largely died out. And now there's a lot of groups that are trying to, they've, they've just in the last, I would say, year and a half learned how to grow them out, you know, so they're, they're behind where we are in Hawaii today, but they now know how to grow them out. And so we now may have an opportunity in the future to apply the same research to the Caribbean species as well. Charlie, so do you have your sights set on, you know, another species or you're just going to play around with this one for a while? I mean, I, I still have a few other experiments I would like to look at with this particular species. Again, to me, this species is, is extremely important to the ecosystems here in Hawaii. And so it's, it's one that I've been focused on for a few years now. And so I am still interested in continuing work on this species. But you never know what, what doors might open in the future. I mean, I, I'm very interested in, in other organisms and, and other functional groups on the reef. So, I mean, this could be uh, a stepping stone to, to checking out other species, but I do still have a, a spot in my heart, I guess you would say, for the collector urchin and its importance on our reefs here in Hawaii. So, because this came out of, you know, your work with the the hatchery over at DLNR, I mean, is, is your hope that you can continue working with them now that you have this breakthrough? If this is something that they're interested in using as a as a tool to supplement their production, I would be very interested in helping them in, in whatever way I can. But again, this has uh, other applications, and there are other experiments that I would like to, to look in that uh, I think will be uh, probably better suited for testing out here on Coconut Island at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. But again, the, the, the hatchery here in Hawaii has been extremely helpful in the past, and, and I fully support their mission of producing more urchins um, for the point of bioremediation. And so, yeah, any way that I could help them, I'm very interested in, in those opportunities. That was Charlie Westbrook and Mary Hagedorn with the Smithsonian Conservation Institute talking with us about the successful rearing of a cryopreserved tropical sea urchin. For links and photos of a juvenile urchin called Spike, check out our webpage, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. 
Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. This month marks one year since the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. It's been catastrophic for women. On the next Fresh Air, we talk with Ramita Navai. She went undercover in Afghanistan to film her new PBS Frontline documentary about how women are being controlled and punished by the Taliban. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. does a boy from the Midwest become a monk in Thailand who creates thought-provoking art in Hawaii? Andrew Binkley's work may be familiar to you. You might have seen his large inflatable boulder called Stone Cloud hovering in the Foster Botanical Garden, or most recently at the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. The conversations Lillian Song spoke with Binkley in our studios to learn about the intersection of art and life in shaping his solo exhibit entitled Surrender. How is it that you're able to understand the passage of life into death with such serenity, with such, I guess, openness, with acceptance? Well, it's something that uh, I've reflected on a lot and uh, in a way looked at it as a practice to reflect on death and coming to a place of not denial of it, but really facing it clearly. So when you do that, a lot of emotions may come up. You know, you may have fear, resistance. When I was younger, I spent time as a Buddhist monk. So there's a lot of practices that one does, meditation practices or reflections, to continually look at it, the reality that the nature of this life is that you will die, that you will pass away, that that which arises passes away. And we would spend even time at morgues, looking at autopsies, going to cremations, and meditating with dead bodies, actually. So for me, all of that practice kind of led me to come to a place of peace and acceptance. But it took looking at it clearly, yeah. Hmm. Reading your biography, Hmm. understanding that you actually come from the Midwest (laughs) of the United States, Uh how was it that you were then led into this Eastern philosophy or mindset? I was a monk in Thailand, so that's a Theravadan forest tradition. I first got introduced to Buddhism through Zen, Japanese form of uh, Soto Zen. And our home actually was the Nebraska Zen Center. So we were already kind of an odd group in the Midwest at that time. Was your family running this? They were. My, My dad, both my parents practiced, but my dad was very much practitioner of Zen and was a professor as well of psychology at that time. But he focused a lot on Eastern philosophy or thought or Taoism and Buddhism. But it was really teenage suffering (laughs) that kind of sparked me to seek a way out of that. And I feel very grateful that those teachings were available to me and, and grateful that it resonated with me. And grateful that then I put it into practice and it bore fruit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So all those things, I feel very fortunate that life kind of evolved that way for me at that time. But before Thailand, you also had another stop in another country. Yeah, I was living in China for a while. I was going to art school at the time, and then I had the opportunity to visit China. And I kind of had it in the back of my mind that I made become a monk. (laughs) Ever ever since I was like 15 or 16 when I I first started practicing meditation. This going back to your teenage angst? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All all kinds of teenage dramas. So I ended up actually wanting to seek a place that I could become a monk or find a teacher. And like I said, I was practicing Zen and China felt like the heart of that. This is where Bodhidharma (laughs) kind of... uh, began it all, uh, coming from India to China. So that's what really 
brought me there to um, end up living there because I met a monk that really inspired me. Ended up staying with him for a while, living in a cave monastery. That was really an incredible experience, very remote, deep in the forest. <laughs> It's like a day's hike and going through these ancient paths. You've actually shown this piece, the big boulder in the sky, Stone Cloud, uh, before in Honolulu, right? Yeah. This 16 by 12 mm. inflatable boulder. Yeah, so it's a giant sculpture of a boulder. The skin of the boulder is actual photographs that I took of stones uh, throughout the islands. The surface of the sculpture seems like all of these stones blended together. Mm. What you see at the bottom is all sea level stones, and on the side is valleys, and the top is mountaintops. And it's suspended in the air, so you can actually walk beneath it. It seems like it's just floating in space. It's called Stone Cloud, embracing these ideas of solidity as well as emptiness. <laughs> And because it's inflated with air, it's sort of almost like it's breathing in a way. A feeling of heaviness, but also lightness. And a feeling of transcending to something that we think of as very fixed and stable of the ground. <laughs> and yet here it is now, like creating a feeling of uncertainty, trepidatious even to walk under it. I had first shown with the Honolulu Biennial, now called the Hawaii Triennial. And we showed it at Foster Botanical Gardens. And this Chinatown. was back in 2017. Yes. That's a good five years ago. So Stone Cloud has since traveled from Foster Botanical to? To Tokyo for a short bit. We displayed it with the Mori Art Museum, but it was in a subway station in Roppongi. So that was incredible just to have it now in a very city environment with uh, millions of people going underneath it as they go up and down an escalator was way up in the air, creating a very different experience than when we had it in a natural garden setting. In having it now in this new context at the Nalama Kukui building, together with the other work, there's sort of a poetry that happens when the work relates to the other artwork in the show, especially in relation to death and the uncertainty of when we will die, but also the heavy heaviness of that or the potential heavy burden of dealing with loss and grief. At the same time, it holds this potential for us to transcend, and there's something that's freeing about it as well. So part of the reason why it's called Stone Cloud, too, is it's holding these two ideas of, say, a stone and a cloud and a stone we think of as very solid and fixed, but a cloud is something that's changing and ephemeral. So holding those two ideas in harmony was something I really uh, mm. considered with the work. Yeah. Mm. So when you walk through the whole space, there's maybe about seven or so bodies of work that really range videos, animation, photographic work. And one work in particular that's really involved people to be more interactive with it is a piece called Timeless. And this is a series of clocks, but the hands have been removed. And on the face of the clock is an image of the stars. And each one of them, though, is a different image of the stars in that they are what the stars looked like at the time and place that somebody passed away. And I've invited people to if they'd like to commemorate somebody that's passed away, then there's a form that they can fill out through my website that then I can make a star map for them and make the piece, and it's added to the wall as the exhibition has grown. And then at the end of the exhibit, each person gets that star map. Mm. Yeah. I'm engaged with my work as an artist. I find it very enriching and fulfilling. So even if I'm not having ideas, I'm still living and still keeping it open. So there are times where it ebbs and flows, and sometimes ideas just flow, you know, like a waterfall is just like coming through, and other times it's kind of stagnant. So I, I actually look at it, the whole practice, I think of it like a forest, where I have lots of ideas and lots of projects that are kind of like different degrees of growth. So some of them are just seeds, some of them, though, they've kind of cultivated to a point where they're growing and some have matured. 
And a lot of them die off, though, too. Like when you look at the forest, there's a lot of death surrounding it. The thing is, though, that that death, though, is not a bad thing. That's feeding all of it as well. So it's all interconnected. Mm. I think of myself as an interdisciplinary conceptual artist. Mm. I'd love people to come to the show while it's it's up. It's only lasting another couple weeks. It it ends uh, August 15th. It's a show that I know a lot of people have found great value in it for themselves. It's been beautiful to hear people's responses. Because it's also a topic that since COVID in particular and pandemic, that a lot of people have been dealing not only with death, but this feeling of uncertainty. And so I think a lot of the work just kind of offers a reflection to ways to handle that potentially and finding acceptance through it. Yeah. Mm. I was so grateful that I chose this theme because it kept reminding me to like, oh, no, you got to really be authentic and live it and make sure you're making the work from that place. So it was like a constant encouragement and reminder to come to that place of surrender and letting go. That was artist Andrew Binkley talking with HPR's Lillian Song. You can catch his eye-popping art piece, a boulder hovering in the air, at the headquarters of the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, formerly known as the Gentry Design Center. The exhibit, Surrender, will be on display at the Naolama Kukui Lifestyle and Design Center through August 15th. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear about the film Easter Sunday. Comedian Joe Coy stars in the new movie featuring a large Filipino-American cast. Do you have a story idea for us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.